Well, let's pray. Father, we can't thank you enough for the things that you've done for us by giving your Son, by saving us from our sins and from death. We thank you, Lord. And we thank you for giving us your word. We can't thank you enough, Lord, for giving your word and your word being a light in a dark place, shining so that we can guide our lives and we can make sure our steps. Lord, I pray that your word would be a light to us this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see that light and give us hearts and minds to understand and help us to see the things that you desire us to see and help us to be transformed by them as you intend for us to be transformed by them. Please, Lord, um, help us this morning as we open your word and turn our attention to your word. Please help us to understand and to be filled with wonder at who you are, because you are truly amazing, God. May we not miss this. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we continue our series on Daniel, which I've called Daniel, the Sovereignty of God. And the title for this morning's sermon is The Extraordinarily Important Issue of Authorship. The Extraordinarily Important Issue of Authorship. And last week, we talked about, or I mentioned how uh, this this particular book of the Bible really requires quite a lengthy introduction before we just dive in and start looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and dissecting its verses. And there's two primary reasons why the book of Daniel, before we dive in, really needs our attention, uh, to our attention in, an, in a lengthy introduction. And one is that many people shy away from the book of Daniel, right? It's not very often that uh, churches will go through the book of Daniel, and a lot of Christians have the attitude that Daniel is a book that's kind of good if you want to just speculate about the future and if you just want to cause controversy and if you just want to cause division, but it doesn't really have much practical value and it would be better for us to study the Gospels or the Epistles so that we can think about Christ and what unites us and the grace of God and our salvation. And frankly, that's just wrong. And so last week we talked about why we should study the book of Daniel. And we need to study books like Daniel to see the Bible as a whole and to see that all scripture was written for our edification and our training in righteousness. And all scripture is about Christ and the gospel. Now obviously we look at Christ and the gospel from different angles, but it's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Get it out of your mind forever that studying books like Revelation or Daniel or end time stuff is just not about the gospel and it's just speculative. That's not true. So we need to study Daniel to see Jesus Christ, to see the value of these books and of course to see Daniel's very unique message of the sovereignty of God. Now the other reason why we need a lengthy introduction to the book of Daniel is this extraordinarily important issue of authorship and date. And if you were to survey the different books of the Bible and what books are the most 
hotly contested in terms of authorship and date, Daniel would probably rank number one on the list. That There's many books of the Bible that people will say, sure, okay, David wrote that psalm, or okay, sure, uh, I'll give it to you that Ezra wrote his memoirs. But not Daniel, or books like Daniel. And why is that? Why would the authorship and date of Daniel be so uh, debated and controversial? And it, the reason is, is because Daniel is unique as a prophetic book. And how many of you know that? You, you've noticed the difference when you read the book of Daniel. Certainly other books in the Bible are books of prophecy, but they don't bother people so much because they're not as perhaps specific, or people can take them in allegorical kinds of ways and say, yeah, that's not really what you, it means. You can kind of interpret things differently but you really can't do that with Daniel. It's pretty clear what Daniel was saying and what he was talking about. And so Daniel becomes, the authorship of Daniel, it becomes a battle. And so we need to look at this so we can see, brothers and sisters, the miracle of the book of Daniel and go forward in our study with the confidence that this is indeed not the word of man as so many people want us to think but it is actually the Word of God. And when we know it is the Word of God, it changes us. That's that's what Jesus meant. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can read the Bible, but if you don't believe it is the Word of God, it's not going to change you. But when you know, this is not man speaking, this is the voice of God, this is the very Word from heaven, that is what is going to affect you and change you. So we want to go forward in our study with that confidence. So if you look here on the whiteboard, there's two dates that you need to kind of just burn into your mind uh, for, for this morning. 532 B.C. and 165 B.C. Are those dates familiar to you? Probably for many of you they're not. I hope that this morning you can kind of register in your mind why these dates are important. Now here's the thing. Everybody agrees whether you believe in God or not, or whether you believe in uh, Daniel being scripture or not, everybody agrees that the book of Daniel is allegedly, or was allegedly written in 532 B.C. So if you pick up the book of Daniel, and you see Daniel saying, you know, I had this vision at this time, in the third year of Cyrus, and whatever, uh, everybody agrees that allegedly the book of Daniel was written at this time, 532 B.C. That's right after the Babylonian captivity, right when the Persians took over Babylon, that, that people know that this is when the book purports to be written. The question is, was it? And many scholars believe, no, it was not written in 532 B.C. at all. It was not written in the days of the story of Daniel at all. It was written in 165 B.C. And how many of you know what's important about that date? That's the time of the Maccabees, if you're familiar with the little bit of Jewish history, 165 BC lands us right in the middle of a major crisis in Israel. In 165 BC, there was a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes who basically decided that my entire empire is going to have one religion and this is going to unite us. And we're going to expel all foreign religions and we're all going to be under one God uh, one, or one system of gods, and the Hebrew religion just doesn't fit in this system. So Antiochus Epiphany, uh, with an iron fist, 
enforced this and it caused a great crisis in Israel. He even uh, desolated the temple in Israel and sacrificed uh, swine flesh on the altar and burned as many Israelite scriptures as he could possibly find and just would kill anyone who would adhere to the God of Israel. A major crisis. And this is with the time of the Maccabees. You can read this in the book of First Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Now here's another thing that everyone agrees on. Between these two times, there's roughly 400 years, right? Roughly 400 years. And what everyone agrees on, liberal or conservative, is that the book of Daniel accurately describes uh, details and history within those two dates, right? So the book of Daniel talks about what happens after the Babylonians and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans and then all the way down in the midst of those two dates, Daniel has lots to tell us and everybody knows, yep, that's what he's talking about. It's clear, it's obvious, it's undeniable. The real controversy is, did Daniel write about this middle section, very detailed, did he write about it before it happened or did he write about it after it happened? Or to put it another way, is the book of Daniel prophecy or is it history? Is Daniel just writing history because he knows what happened in the past? Or is he writing prophecy, which is a miracle, and he's, and he's saying what is going to happen, and indeed it did happen? Now, why is that important? Well, how many of you know that the Book of Mormon prophesies of Christopher Columbus? Do you know that? The Book of Mormon prophesies of Christopher Columbus. It prophesies of the founding of America. It prophesies of the American Revolution and the victory of the Americans over the British. All of that is in the Book of Mormon. But guess what? Nobody takes that seriously. Any scholar or the average Joe who's not a Mormon doesn't take that seriously. If, if someone were to open the Book of Mormon and say, look, it's here written, Christopher Columbus, American Revolution, victory over the British. And this was all written before, this was written way back in the time of the Americas, you know, way back when the Native Americans were Jews and all that. Nobody takes it seriously. Why? Because when it came forth, right, when the Book of Mormon came forth was after those events. The Book of Mormon was published in 1830 and uh, it came forth at that time. And so it'd be odd to say, look, this book prophesied of things that happened in the past when there is no record of that book before those events, right? And so no one takes that, I don't think probably many people in this room take that very seriously, right? Now is the Book of Daniel like the Book of Mormon? And many, many scholars think it is. They, okay, yeah, sure, Daniel allegedly wrote it before, but like the Book of Mormon, it, it came forth later. And so it doesn't affect me. It doesn't challenge me. It doesn't change me. It's not God's word. In fact, it's worse than that. It's either God or it's a fraud. There's a little rhyme. A God or a fraud, right? Because if it was written after the fact and allegedly was written before, that's a lie. That's a lie. And so the book of Daniel is actually either a lie or it's truth from God or from man. And this is why there's such a battlefield. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. 
Isaiah 41, verse 21. Isaiah 41, verse 21. This is, as a dear friend of mine likes to say, this is God's chosen apologetic. God's chosen apologetic. His chosen defense of his godness. God's chosen defense of his own godness. Not man's chosen uh, apologetic. And look at what God says here in verse 21. And I'll read to verse uh, 26. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forth your strong arguments. See, here we see that the God of the Bible likes to debate and argue, and he likes people to bring forth their reasons for why they believe in things, okay? So if you believe in something, God wants to say, bring forth your case and your argument. What? What's the reason you believe that? Lay it all out. Give me your best shot. The king of Jacob says, Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. So he's saying, tell us the future. As for the former events, declare what they were. Tell us the past. Because even that could be miraculous, right? If, there's no, if we have uh, no information about the past, and then someone says, yeah, this is what happened in the past, and then all of a sudden later we discover that is what happened in the past. That person knew something that, from God. That we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Verse 23, declare the things that are going to come afterward. Why? That we may know that you are gods. So here God is challenging the false gods. He's saying, okay, if you want us to believe that you're real gods, then tell us the future. Tell us history. Actually, he goes on to say, do, do anything. <laughs> Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. He's like, do something that we can tremble. Come on, just do something. You don't do anything. Behold, you are of no account and your work sums up to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. This is the difference between the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, and all the other false gods. All false gods don't do anything. They really don't. And everything that we know about those false gods was just thought up by man. It's just man making stuff up. The God of the Bible does things. And one of the things that he does is that he tells us the future and he tells us the past so that we can consider them and find out, wow, God actually does stuff. God can do what man can't do. And God says, I've done this in the past, I'm going to do it again and I'll do it in the future. God's, God does things so that we may see and fear. Very important. Now jump down to verse 26. Very important. It says here, who has declared this from when? From the beginning. See, it's very important that it was declared from the beginning that we might know or from former times that we might say he is right. In order for anyone to be convinced of prophecy, the declaration of what was going to happen had to have happened before it happened. Right? That's what, that's what this verse is meaning. Who declared it beforehand so that we can say he's God? He's right. 
And so the issue of Daniel's authorship is extremely important. Did he declare it from beforehand, or is God like the other gods that does nothing, and it's just something that we kind of like to believe as human beings, we think it up and it gives us something nice to think about before we go to bed. What is Daniel? So people fight this because it's so powerful. God's chosen apologetic, I submit, brothers and sisters, is the church's secret weapon that we hardly use. You know, the early church used prophecy an awful lot to convince people of the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. And do you think they're off the wall or weird? There's this intellectual atmosphere today that says prophecy is speculative and weird. And we have that because of so many bad examples of people doing prophecy or speculating and herald campings and things like that. But the reality is, God has chosen this as our great secret weapon. I want to ask you as a Christian, do you consider God's chosen apologetic to be a powerful weapon indeed? Have you ever used it? Have you considered it? Uh, Maybe this morning you'll consider that from here on out, I'm going to give more attention to what God gives attention to. People fight against this so voraciously because it is so powerful. Now this morning... I'd like to just introduce us to the issues that are involved. Uh, We're going to look at first the arguments against the traditional date that people put forth to say that this is not of God. This is history, not prophecy. And then we're going to look at the arguments for the date, the old date, 532. And then we'll close by asking, what does this mean for us? And obviously there's a lot to talk about in this, so we're just going to have to give an introduction and be brief, and I encourage you to just take what is said here this morning and go look into it yourself. Arguments for 165 BC. Before we jump into the details here, it cannot be emphasized enough that all thinking that places Daniel in 165 BC, the authorship and date of Daniel in 165, is based upon an anti-supernatural presupposition. And that can't be emphasized more strongly. That the starting place for many people is prophecy and miracles cannot happen, right? It can't happen. So it doesn't matter what evidence you put forth, it can't happen, your evidence must be wrong. And they begin with this presupposition, which really is baseless. I read to you this quote last week, I'll read it again. W. Sibley Towner, who taught at Union Theological Seminary as well as Yale Divinity School, two very prestigious uh, seminaries, said this in his commentary on Daniel. Quote, We need to assume that the vision as a whole is a prophecy after the fact. Why? Because human beings are unable accurately to predict future events centuries in advance. And to say that Daniel could do so, even on the basis of a symbolic revelation vouchsafed to him by God and interpreted by an angel, is to fly in the face of the certainties of human nature. Isn't that a a remarkable quote? So basically, it has to be written after the fact, because otherwise, even despite what God could do, it would fly in the face of the certainties of human nature. That, dear brothers and sisters, is the mindset of the liberal, non-traditional scholars who write against the Bible. 
and its supernatural elements. They can't accept that God could give, could do what man cannot do, which is the basis of Christianity, is it not? What, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That's from the very beginning, right? Abraham and his having a child way past the age of childbearing, his faith was believing God to do something that was impossible with man. And so it is with our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ is believing God to do something which is impossible with man. What is that? It is impossible with man for us to be righteous through the works of the law. It is absolutely impossible for a man to justify himself before God. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But here's the miracle of Christianity. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, whoever puts their faith in God is justified from all things and stands perfectly blameless in the sight of God and in the judgment of God. Totally blameless through faith in Christ. The rest of the world says, that's impossible. If you sin, you can't be blameless. If You can't stand blameless if you're not keeping the commandments. It's impossible. But we say, no, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Through the death of Christ and through the cross of Christ, something supernatural can happen. The power of the blood of Jesus can make you blameless. What an amazing thing. So really, to deny the supernatural at any level ultimately ends up denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll find that people who reject uh, the creation of the world, the supernatural creation of the world for a naturalistic interpretation, people who reject prophecy, um, usually are fertile for the rejection of the gospel because they just go hand in hand because it's all requiring you to believe something supernatural, that God can do something that man cannot do. So this causes them to seek for problems in the Bible and God uses that for good. I think that's the scrutiny that has been uh, given to the Bible to try to prove it wrong by the anti-supernaturalists have, has actually... Uh, been working together for the good of those who believe and it's been helpful because it only strengthens our case when people give their best shot to disprove something and it it only uh, shows us even more how true and accurate the Bible is. As Arno Gabaline said, wicked men, heathen philosophers and infidels have hammered away against it but the book has proven to be the anvil upon which the critics' hammers have been broken to pieces. Anyone who's familiar at all with the scrutiny of the Bible can agree with Gabaline's statement. The very earliest criticism against the book of Daniel that we know of comes from the 3rd century A.D. from a man named Porphyry who hated Christians. And he wrote a book against Christians. And one of the the things he wrote in the book was trying to disprove that Daniel was prophecy. Because he knew the Christians always used Daniel to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And in his hatred of Christianity and in his unbelief of the supernatural, Porphyry said he put forth that Daniel was written in 165 BC. He says, Daniel wasn't written when you guys think it was written. And his reason? People can't prophesy. And so it had to be written after the fact. This was Porphyry's argument and today scholars in these universities actually just believe the exact same thing and preach the same thing Porphyry says. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not like anything new has, has been set forth, amazingly. 
So what are their arguments that they use to try to justify their belief? There are two categories of arguments we're going to look at. The first category is external evidence, and the second category is internal evidence. By external evidence, we mean what evidence do we have outside of the book of Daniel that shows that the book of Daniel was written uh, later? If we want to look outside the book. The internal, of course, is what evidence in the book shows that it was written later? Now, externally, the, the liberal scholars can put forth two. Only two. Two external evidences. Here's the first one. You, you evaluate these to see for yourself if you think that they are good and solid reasons. The first external evidence that the book of Daniel was written later and not earlier is its position in the Hebrew canon. Its position in the Hebrew canon. You see, uh, the Hebrew canon is organized a little bit different than ours. All the same books are in it that we use, but the, the order of the books are a little bit different. And in the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew canon is divided into three sections. You've got the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. You've got the prophets, and you've got the writings. And in the Hebrew canon, Daniel, Daniel is included in the writings, not the prophets. And so the, the liberals surmise, well, if Daniel really was written in 532 B.C., he, they would have included him in the section called the prophets, not the writings. The strange thing about that is that there are plenty of books in the writings that are older than books that are in the prophets. So just being in the writings doesn't mean that you're a young book at all. And there are books in the writings that are also prophetic, like the Psalms, where David in the Psalms makes all sorts of prophecies, and that would be included in the writings as well. But the reason why Daniel wasn't included in the prophets isn't because it was written uh, later and not earlier, but because simply... Daniel was not a prophet in the sense of having a prophetic office like the other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, etc. God called those men to a vocation where they would speak to Israel and preach to Israel and, and rebuke Israel and encourage Israel and, and they, they would be living amongst Israel directly uh, trying to steer the nation in the right direction. Daniel certainly includes prophecies. He had a dream of the future and visions of the future. But his life was not the vocation of a prophet. He lived in a heathen court. He was just a secular uh, officer. And that is why, because all the prophets are, are all of that vocation, but Daniel was not. He didn't function in that way. And what's interesting, though, is that in the Septuagint translation of the Bible, Daniel is included in the prophets, which is where we base our Bible off of as well. So really, it's a very weak argument to say it couldn't have been written er later or early, it had to be written late because of his place in the Bible. Here's the second external reason. In 180 BC, 180, which is before 165, there was a, a Jewish man named Ben Sira. And Ben Sira wrote a book that we know as Ecclesiasticus or Sirach, also in the Apocrypha. And in, in that book, he has a few chapters that are just like the Hebrews 11 chapter in the book of Hebrews, where he lists a bunch of Jewish heroes, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, you've got all these heroes of the faith, you could say. Ben Sira does the same thing, where he lists a bunch of uh, heroes in Jewish history. And, and the non-traditionalists would say, 
Notice that Ben Sira doesn't mention Daniel in his Heroes of the Faith, which means in 180, he didn't know about Daniel. You see? Otherwise, he of course would have mentioned Daniel. So that's proof that Daniel wasn't written before uh, Ben Sira. But brothers and sisters, the absence of Daniel's name in the list proves nothing. And consider also that there are many other famous heroes in the Bible that are not listed in Ben Sira's list. Abel, Job, Mordecai, and even one of the most famous heroes in Jewish history, Ezra. They are not mentioned in his list at all. And if you look at his list, his list has a really uh, specific flavor to it, and Daniel really doesn't fit that flavor. Um, the flavor is the tri- kind of Israel triumphant. And Daniel seems to be, uh, you know, obviously just a, a captive serving Babylon. Many scholars actually point out that the book of Sirach depends in many places on the book of Daniel as well. So there are your two external arguments. When the liberals scour the universe to find outside of the book of Daniel reasons that it couldn't have been written earlier, they come up with those two. It's position in the canon and it's absence from Sira's, Ben Sira's list. Here are the four internal reasons. When they look inside the book of Daniel, they say it must have been written later because one, the book of Daniel has historical inaccuracies. And since there are historical inaccuracies, it must have been written by a guy 400 years later who just didn't really know the details of the time as well as we do. Daniel gets the date of the siege of Jerusalem wrong, they say. He calls the Chaldeans a, a group of priests, which we know that that was only later that they figured out that they called them a group of priests. Uh, Daniel says that King Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon before the Persians took over. That's not true. Daniel says that Darius the Mede took over uh, Babylon, and that's not true. It was Cyrus. So Daniel must have been written 400 years later. Look at all these historical accuracies and blunders. No one in the uh, 6th century BC would get this wrong. But brothers and sisters, this kind of reasoning means that The author of Daniel, even if he wrote in 165, must have been extremely dumb, for there was plenty of opportunity to get your details right. In fact, some of the alleged historical inaccuracies can be solved just by reading other parts of the Old Testament. Just by reading the book of Chronicles, you could know that Cyrus took over. So so the author must have been extremely dumb. But here's the thing that, that has been uncovered. These arguments now that I've given were actually originally put forth in the 19th century, in the 1800s. And since then, many new archaeological discoveries have been found. Tablets, histories of the Persians and of the Babylonians. And these discoveries have actually proven Daniel to be correct in what he says in his book which is actually makes his case stronger, right? Because before we knew that stuff, we said, look, he's wrong. Later we find out he's right. He was actually correct. Just to give you one example, uh, they say that Belshazzar was not the last king in Babylon. A man by the name of Nabonidus was. And that's true. Nabonidus was the last, you could say, emperor of Babylon. But what we found from the tablets that have been discovered is that In the last 10 years of Nabonidus' life and reign, he did not live in Babylon at all. He had moved away and lived in a a different area. 
And he had set up his son, Belshazzar, as king in Babylon. And so while Belshazzar wasn't over all of the empire, uh, he was the one who was reigning in Babylon. He was, though, practically the king over all of Babylon because his father was basically just in retirement. And this is an amazing thing because you'll notice that when Belshazzar calls in Daniel to interpret the writing on the wall, he says, if, if you can tell me what the writing says, I'll make you the third in the kingdom of Babylon. Why didn't he say the second? If he was the top, then he could have made Daniel the second. But he said, I'll, give you, I'll make you the third, because Belshazzar himself was the second. So there's little things like this that have been discovered that show, wow, Daniel is actually spot on in what he said. The scholar Stephen Miller writes this, the author of Daniel exhibited a more extensive knowledge of the 6th century events than would seem possible for a 2nd century writer. Here's the second internal argument or evidence that the liberals give. They say, the theology of the book of Daniel is too advanced. Too advanced for it to be written in 532 BC. You see, at the time of the Maccabees, there was lots of obviously books that were written in in the Jewish world. And what you'll notice is that those books talk a lot about angels and they name angels and they talk about the hierarchy of angels and they talk about the resurrection of the dead in great detail and they talk about the judgment day and the coming Messiah in great detail. And that's sort of what characterizes the writings of the Jews around this time in 165. And so they say, hey, Daniel has angels and the mention of their names and the prophecy of the Messiah and... Uh, Judgment Day, it's all there. So Daniel must be in that group of Jewish writings that are in the 165 B.C. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of angels, resurrection, judgment, and Messiah is found all throughout the Old Testament. It's not exclusive to that age. What is exclusive to that age is kind of the great attention and details that are given to those doctrines. The book of Zechariah, which no one disputes its date, is actually very similar to the book of Daniel in style and theology. And what we know, God reveals things in, in, a, in a progressive manner. And so why couldn't Daniel just have received a recent development? And in fact, when you consider it, why couldn't the later Jewish writings just kind of be uh, further de- developments off of the book of Daniel? Daniel seems to strike a perfect balance between uh, the Old Testament books before him and the later Jewish writings in terms of the details and the attention that they give to these doctrines. Daniel's sort of right in the middle. He doesn't give a lot of attention and detail to angels and these things. He gives some, but not as much as the ones that came later and a little bit more than the ones that came before. So it seems that the theology points to Daniel being exactly in the right place. So it seems like that's, that is a poor argument that his, his theology is too advanced. Judge for yourself whether that is a good argument. Here's the third one. The third internal evidence. The liberals point to the language of the book of Daniel. Now in the book of Daniel you'll find four languages used. Hebrew, Aramaic, Persian, and even Greek words. Now the Liberal scholars will say, we all know language changes over time. 
and the Hebrew and the Aramaic of Daniel, it, it seems to be a later dialect than the Aramaic and Hebrew that was used in the 6th century. Also, the fact that Daniel uses Persian words and even Greek words shows that it must have been written much, much later. But brothers and sisters, once again, as I said before, that these were arguments that were put forth in the 1800s and since then new discoveries have rendered these arguments obsolete. We found lots of new papyri dating from 532 roughly that have lots of Hebrew and Aramaic and what we found is that the Hebrew and the Aramaic of these new papyri we found is virtually the same as the book of Daniel. The Persian words that Daniel uses, almost all of them are technical uh, government words that we would expect Daniel to use if he wrote his book at 532 after the Persians had taken over Babylon. Persia became the dominant empire in the world at that time. What about the three Greek words? The liberals say this is absolute proof that Daniel was not written in the 6th century because he has Greek in his book. And that's true. But here's the amount of Greek words that are used. There are three and they are all musical instruments, okay? The three Greek words that are in the book of Daniel are musical instruments. And what we've discovered since these arguments have been put forth in the 1800s is that the Greek culture and civilization interacted with the rest of the Mediterranean world and the Middle Eastern world for a very, very long, long time. We thought that their interaction was, was uh, relatively young, but it's actually very old. There was plenty of Greek mercenaries and traders that infiltrated the Babylonian and the Assyrian and the Persian Empire long before Daniel was ever written. And certainly the Greek musical instruments could have been known uh, in the Babylonian court by the time Daniel was written. But that's not the only thing that destroys the liberal argument. It is the fewness of the Greek words that shows that Daniel must have been written in 532 and not 165. Because in 165 BC, brothers and sisters, the whole world was Greek, basically. Okay? Greek culture had infiltrated every nation, including Israel. It was a time of great Hellenization, and all the Jewish writings from this time are full of Greek idioms, Greek words. They're even written in Greek, many things. Yet Daniel has no bearing of Greek whatsoever except three musical instruments. That's the only traces of Greek in the book of Daniel. Amazing if it, if it were written in 165. The scholar Charles Boutflower says, it is the fewness of the Greek words, coupled with the fact that they are only the names of musical instruments, that must prove fatal to the critics' theory that the book was written in 165. Edwin Yamauchi, famous archaeologist and scholar, says, the only element of surprise to this writer is that there are not more Greek words. This is one of the strongest arguments against the late date. And lastly, the liberal arg uh, liberals argue one other thing internally. They say, and this is really a desperate argument, that the message of Daniel would be useless to Jews in the 6th century. It would only make sense that it would be written in the time of the Maccabees. Because if it was written earlier, then everything Daniel says is, 
is something that's future. He's not even writing to his own society and his own culture and his own time. Everything he says is future. But if he wrote in 165, then he's writing in the midst of crisis and he can encourage uh, his people. Judge for yourself whether that is a good argument. You see, the time of the Maccabees was a time when the Jews were in conflict with the Greeks and they were actually stirring up their nation to fight and to kill the Gentiles and to throw off Greek influences and to restore the Jewish way. It's a rally cry to battle. But what's amazing is the book of Daniel is is markedly not anti-Gentile at all, is it? That Daniel enjoys favor in the Gentile court and even uh, is very loyal to his Gentile masters. And they have actually a kind of a beautiful relationship together. And so there's no sense of get rid of these horrible uh, leaders. The message of Daniel is God is sovereign and in control. There's a hope and a future for Israel. And there's redemption. And this, of course, would be useful for exiles of the Jews who have been recently kicked out of their land. So I I consider that argument to be absolutely ridiculous. That's it, brothers and sisters, for the arguments against the traditional date. Judge for yourself whether they are strong or not. And look into this yourself. I trust I've been fair to the other side. There are two external arguments and those four internal arguments. And now, what are the arguments for 532 B.C.? And I've already mentioned some of them, so I'll go through this briefly. Amazingly, externally, there are seven, at least. Seven. Number one, Jesus Christ told his disciples that Daniel was a prophet. And when you read his writings, you're to understand what he said, because he prophesied, and that is what Jesus' opinion of Daniel was. Did Jesus think Daniel was from God, or did he think it was a fraud? What do you think? God or fraud? If everything was written afterwards, and it's not prophecy at all, then the integrity of Jesus' understanding would be in question. For he said, when you read Daniel the prophet, then you understand. He's talking about the same thing that I'm talking about, right? And for us Christians, that alone should settle the argument forever. The fact that Jesus, his, his opinion of Daniel was that it was indeed from God. The second external evidence comes from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. Ezekiel was written at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and in chapter 14 and 28, Ezekiel explicitly mentions Daniel by name, a contemporary of Daniel. Now, the amazing thing, how do the liberals deal with this? Amazingly, the liberals say that Ezekiel wasn't actually referring to the Daniel that we know in the Bible. He was referring to a pagan epic legend that contains a figure named Daniel. And that's who Ezekiel was referring to. That's how they get out of that one. There's a guy named Daniel that was written in a pagan legend. That's not not the Daniel of the Bible, the Daniel of that legend. Stephen Miller says, 
to suggest that Ezekiel would select an idolater as an example to Jewish idolaters to forsake idolatry seems incomprehensible. (laughs) Third external argument. I mentioned earlier the book of 1 Maccabees. This is the book that was written during, or just actually after the crisis of the Maccabee time. And the book of Maccabees, there's a, it, it, it traces the story of a family. And um, the father of this family in, exhorts his, brother, his sons excuse me, to basically lead Israel against the uh, Gentile forces that are trying to snuff out the Israelite religion. And in the book of Maccabees, Mattathias is his name, this father. He dies. He dies. The date of his death is 166. So Mattathias actually dies before they say Daniel was written. And on his deathbed, he's encouraging his sons and he's reminding them of the mighty deeds that God has done. And he's saying, sons, remember David and remember... uh, uh," And he lists a bunch of figures in Jewish history. He says, remember that that God was with them. Elijah and, and Ezra and all these people, remember. And he mentions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel on his deathbed. He says, sons, remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he gives the Hebrew names of them, and he says that they were delivered from the fire. And remember that Daniel was delivered from the lion. And so before they, the alleged date of the writing of Daniel, Mattathias is, is speaking of them. Here's how the liberals deal with that. Well, they say, well, you know, the, the stories were well known at that time, but the prophetic writings were written later. And brothers and sisters, if we were to ask what reason do we have to believe that? There are none. The only reason that could be put forth is prophecy can't happen. So maybe Mattathias knew the stories, but he certainly didn't know the prophecies because they were written later. Judge for yourself. It's either prophecy can happen or prophecy can't. Fourth external evidence is the Septuagint. As I've mentioned, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And it was completed right about this time in 165. And it includes the full text of the book of Daniel, including the prophecies. And it also includes three apocryphal stories that are uh, attached to the book of Daniel. If you're familiar in the Apocrypha, there are three stories that are added to the book of Daniel. What that shows is that at the time the Septuagint was written, Daniel was already in existence and already respected enough that it would be accepted in the canon and have three different apocryphal stories written about it. Stories that we know weren't actually written as part of the book itself. Amazing. Usually if you're going to write a apocryphal work, you're going to attach it to some super respected work to gain credibility, and they attach it to the book of Daniel. If Daniel had only had a few years of existence, it hardly would have been that respected by the time it was included in the Septuagint. Fifthly, Josephus mentions it, fully believes in its antiquity, and even tells us that Alexander the Great was shown the book of Daniel when he arrived in Jerusalem. Sixthly, the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most remarkable discoveries of the 20th century, where they found all these scrolls that date uh, almost 2,000 years ago. Actually, in fact, 2,000 years ago. And eight copies of Daniel were found, which in fact was 
Uh, most of the entire Old Testament was found, but there were more copies of Daniel found than any other book, showing the supreme importance of Daniel in the uh, first century B.C. and A.D., which is when the scrolls generally come from. So Daniel, the Dead Sea Scrolls shows us how amazingly influential the book of Daniel was. There's also other manuscripts that quote from Daniel. There's lots of commentary on Daniel, all found in the scrolls that date before the time of Jesus Christ. There's even a a copy of Daniel that dates from the second century itself. All scholars know the Dead Sea Scrolls' copies of Daniel means that Daniel was written a lot longer before those copies were actually made. And most scholars, all scholars will do that with other books they found. They found books of the Old Testament. They say, well, that proves they were written a long time before. But they don't seem to do that with Daniel for some reason. Well, I know the reason. Bruce Waltke says, the discovery of manuscripts at Daniel at, of Daniel at Qumran, dating from the Maccabean period, renders it highly improbable that the book was composed during the time of the Maccabees. The last external evidence is that the book of Daniel's antiquity was accepted by Jews and Christians, uh, has always been accepted by the tradition of the Jews and the Christians, which would be absolutely remarkable if it was actually a fraud. Just consider for a moment, if Daniel was written after those events, why would the Jews have thought that it was prophecy, and why would they have given it so much attention if it was actually, just like the Book of Mormon, written after those events? The Jews didn't believe in things because they had feelings. Okay, They didn't pray about the Book of Daniel. They were convinced that Daniel was true prophecy because they had received that text from antiquity. The internal evidences we've already gone over. Historical accuracy. The theology is just right. The language of Daniel actually proves it was written in the 6th century. The message and character of Daniel fits the earlier date and not the later date. And there's one more internal evidence I'll add to these four. And that is Daniel includes prophecy that actually has come to pass. Because consider this, brothers and sisters, the book of Daniel prophesies about, an, about some events that happened way after the time of the Maccabean crisis. Can you, do you remember what they are? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay? So even if we accepted that Daniel was written in 165 BC, that doesn't change... The, and they, ha- they can't go any later than that because it's very clear the evidence... They can't, they can't push Daniel back any further. The Dead Sea Scrolls and all that just keeps it there for them. But even if we said, all right, let's grant that it was written in 165, that doesn't change the fact that the book is still prophetic for this, a man writing in 165 could never have prophesied the coming of Jesus, the death of Christ, and the destruction of the temple in 780. Everything points to this book being a miracle. If he could prophesy of Jesus... Why couldn't he prophesy of everything else beforehand? Quote, a quote from R.K. Harrison, professor of Old Testament at the University of Toronto, the fact is that the critical scholars have made out an extremely poor case for the Maccabean dating. And Joyce Baldwin, the former principal of Trinity College in Bristol, wrote, 
when all the relevant factors are taken into account, including the arguments for the unity of the book, a late 6th or early 5th century dating of writing for the whole best suits the evidence. Why is this so important? Because, brothers and sisters, what attacks this is an anti-supernatural presupposition. And if we give the liberals this, they won't stop at anything. They want to take away your confidence in the supernatural on all points. They want to destroy your faith in a God of the miraculous who can prophesy, who can create, and who can save. Where is the buck going to stop? And I think this is a good place for the buck to stop, brothers and sisters. We have a strong case here. We have a secret weapon. God says, bring forth your strong arguments. God says, show us if you're gods that you do something. God says, tell us beforehand what will be so that we might know that you are God and fear. And brothers and sisters, it's thinking like this that destroys confidence in prophecy that ultimately ends up destroying confidence in God and in our salvation through Jesus Christ also. Where's the buck going to stop? Ask yourself. What does this all mean for us? As Daniel himself says in Daniel 2.28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and makes known what will be. True or false? Okay? Daniel could say that with confidence. Can we today say that with confidence? When we look at the book of Daniel and examine the arguments for and against, can we say too, there is indeed a God in heaven who reveals his mysteries. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not just feeling after God, uh, trying to figure it all out, trying to discern for ourselves, is there a God, what's it all about, what's he doing? Coming up with our own ideas and our own word. But there is a God who reveals who reaches down to us, who speaks, who shows us who he is. God is not the unknown God that we have to just sort of make stuff up about him. God has revealed himself to us as Jehovah, as the God who does things. And it's through what he does that we know what he is like. The God of the Bible is there. He has told us in advance what he will do. And just as he said... God came to earth and he came to bring in everlasting righteousness as we're going to see in Daniel and to save us because he loves us. God did this for you and you can have confidence that he did when you consider, as Joyce Baldwin says, all the relevant factors. Isn't that wonderful? That you don't just believe in this because it sounds nice or because you've prayed about it and you have a good feeling, or because you just want it to be true, or because someone just told it to you and you just believe them uncritically. But you can actually know and have confidence there is a God in heaven who loves you and who died to save you from your sins. Isn't that wonderful, brothers and sisters? Daniel is indeed an extraordinary book because of its extraordinary authorship, date, and content. This can only be dismissed by the ignorant or the infidel. But for us, God's people, let us turn eagerly and joyously 
to the book of Daniel and read its contents with confidence, knowing that God has a strong case and that God has acted for us and done things in his great love for us. God has made himself known to us and we can enjoy him forever. And we can begin right now by giving heed to his word. Let's pray. Father, once again, we cannot thank you enough for giving your word to be a light in a dark place. As the Apostle Peter said, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things spoken of the, by the prophets, for they shine as lights in a dark world. Father, teach us of this great secret weapon. Help us not to react against uh, bad examples. Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray that each and every one of us here this morning would be encouraged and would rejoice in the fact that you are Jehovah, the known God, who loves us so greatly and that your love is real and concrete and solid. We thank you and praise you, Almighty God, in Jesus' name. Amen.